Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Akila Relaford, founder and CEO of Mary Louise Cosmetics. On this episode, you'll hear Akila's journey of how she created a multi-million dollar skincare business, starting from her sophomore days in college. And as many of my listeners know, I find inspiration in a lot of forms. And with Akila, there's so many things that inspire me about her, from the confidence that she had in herself to drop out of college at Howard University and pursue an entrepreneurial path, to her humility that she shares in learning how to run a business, and also her grace as she builds an empire of serious skincare that's not so stuffy. Please enjoy this episode with a powerful Leo who is taking the beauty world by storm, Akila Relaford. Hi, Akila. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So excited to have you on. And a big thank you to Michael Wang. We were talking about a few investing things and started talking about my show. And he's a big fan of Mendocino Farms, the restaurant chain that started in LA. And so we were talking about our mutual respect and admiration for Ellen Chen, the co-founder. And then your name came up and Michael said that you were an absolute rock star and felt that you were a force to be reckoned with. And so I'm thrilled to connect. So big thank you to Michael. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, he's great. And so you started your company as a side hustle in your college dorm room. And before we talk about that, what I love to hear is really where people grew up. And so in that journey, I always like to include that. So if you don't mind, before we start talking about your now multi-million dollar business, if you don't mind rewinding your highlight reel to really where you grew up. I am an LA native. I am from Hancock Park, Los Angeles, California. Super old neighborhood. I feel like a lot of people don't know where Hancock Park is unless you're from Los Angeles. So true Angelinos know where it is. And I'm a California girl through and through. And I definitely feel that that California vibe has made its way through my company, that same kind of laid back inspiration. I always like asking people how they chose the college they went to and why. And it's interesting because through all the interviews, it's clear that nobody knew what they wanted to do in college, like no idea. And so it was part academic education, but social. And so that was including the people that they met and their professors. But for you, I'd love to hear how you chose the college you went to and why. So my dad is a surgeon. So I grew up being that kid around about science, visiting my dad at the office. So I thought it would be a great place to go to Howard just because he had done part of his education there as well. And I knew the history behind the school and I thought it'd be a great place to get a change of scenery from the West Coast to East Coast living. And 
just wanted to try something different. So my major was biology pre-med, wanted to follow my dad's footsteps, quickly realized that that was not the right path for me. First day of organic chemistry. And I'm like, I can't do this anymore. This is too much. And I just wanted something different, had some family back on the East Coast as well. And it was a great experience to connect with other Black kids from around the world. So growing up in a predominantly white school and white neighborhood, it was definitely a culture shock for me, but it was a beautiful experience. And so once you cited OCHEM, not for you, and you weren't going to be a doctor, what did you pivot to? In the meantime, while I was doing the organic chemistry and the biology pre-med, I was in my dorm room making skincare products. That was my thing before college. I was the DIY girl, DIY face mask, skincare, body scrub, whatever, and using my little sister as a guinea pig. And that is where I found my passion of wanting to start a skincare line. When I was supposed to be doing homework in my dorm, I was making skincare products instead and really sparked this interest of entrepreneurism and doing my own thing. I love that. And so at what point did you start the business versus just saying, hey, this is a hobby on the side? And how did the actual business get created? While I was making products in my dorm room, I was sharing them with the girls on my floor. Mississippi Mud, which is our first product ever and still a hero product. I would walk around the halls with the mask on and girls would say, can I try this? What is this? Got some super interesting feedback from them. They said, this is an amazing face mask. We love it. But we're also using it as a body polish to exfoliate our legs. I felt that that was a really good way to set the tone for a potential brand is how can I create a brand that gives users fun, freedom, autonomy to play with natural ingredients in their own way, just like how I was doing it in my dorm. So that was the birth of the brand. On one winter break, I sat down with my dad at the table at home and said, I really want to start a skincare company. Can we formulate some serious products based upon the stuff I've been making in my dorm, put it on a website and see what happens. So we spent the entire month doing that. And that's how it kind of took off. Amazing. And so what year was this in college for you? This was 2016. So the winter break of 2016, the website was born and then our first official product launched. And then the next year I decided to leave school. So sophomore to junior year in college, you had this business that was kind of booming because people were doing a lot of e-commerce and shopping online. And at what point did you say, hey, let's take a pause in school and really go for it? The end of sophomore year was when I decided to put the site up, which was like winter break, December. So the site was up from December through April of 2017. Site kind of laid dormant just because I was still focusing on school, kind of doing business on the side. And then in the meantime, my dad would be turning his office, his medical practice in LA to basically a fulfillment center after hours and use different rooms in his office to ship out orders for me because there was no way I could store inventory in my dorm room. So spring break of 2017, I had a serious conversation with my parents and they basically said, look, your business is growing. I can't keep fulfilling orders. The plan was to just take a semester off school and see what I could grow. But that turned into three years off. And that summer, it just really blew up. We were 
orders grew from 10 orders today to a hundred orders a day. And all I was doing was shipping boxes with my sister and it just was completely unexpected. It's amazing. And so were you still formulating all the materials and products by yourself at that point? Yes. So the rest of that year, I was spending so much time making products that I had no time to do product development or social media. So then we made the decision to use a manufacturer. And all along the way, I mean, you're a sophomore to junior in college. I wouldn't know if you would identify yourself as an entrepreneur or a businesswoman or a chemist. When you were doing that path and saying, okay, let's just take a semester off, were you afraid or nervous about learning the business model and the operations and doing the revenue projections? How did you think about running the business in addition to just creating the skincare and cosmetics line? To that, I will say if I knew how much work it was now, I probably would have stopped and or kept it as a hobby. It was just so fun and exciting to see that people were gravitating towards my love of DIY skincare. And it was amazing. So I definitely, it was like learning on the go, learning on the job experience. As issues came to me or challenges came to me, I would deal with them then. For example, there was a point where our mask blew up on social media and I didn't understand that the virility of those posts would stop or come to an end. And so one day I woke up with no sales. And so I'm like, okay, how do we leverage this now 10,000 email subscriber list that we have and make sales. So looking back, I should have been leveraging those sales as I'm building the business, but then I had to learn how to do email funnels by myself. So as things came to me, then I tackled. So let's start with the beginning of the business. How did the name come about? Mary Louise is my middle name. It's also the name of my grandmother's. Mary is my maternal and Louise is my paternal. I thought it was a cute name for the brand that meant something to me and quirky and cute and super girly. So I thought that was a perfect name for it. Fantastic. And so what were the initial products that you launched with versus where has it evolved to today? Our bestseller today is Miracle Serum. So people automatically assume that that was our first product, but Mississippi Mud was our first product. Then we came out with Miracle Serum, which was also formulated in my dorm. And then the Green Tea Cleanser came out, which was a product that I formulated after leaving school, the first product outside of the dorm room. So we went with those three products for a while. And then customers started asking for a body moisturizer. So we introduced mango body butter. So over the last three years, we've experimented and played with maybe 17 different products. Fast forward till today, we're in the middle of a relaunch and really refining our product offering and looking at what speaks to customers the most and making sure that the products that we carry now are essential, durable, and really are the face of the stars of the show. So it's a lot of trial and error. So many limited edition collections that we launched and just never brought back. But it was fun. It was fun to create. I love the scarcity value. When you put a limited edition, I'm like first in line. Like I need to have it. I mean, it's limited. So (laughs) I'd love to hear what's in the products. And so you'd mentioned it's an all natural line, but the Mississippi mud, what's in that? In the Miracle Serum, what's in it in terms of the formulation and the ingredients? The purpose of the Mississippi mud mask is to detoxify. So it was super important that each product had 
a purpose, but then also gave users that same autonomy and freedom to play with the skincare product however they wanted to. So the Mississippi Mud Mask is a clay-based mud mask instead of water. So instead of giving that super tight feeling on your face, it's very dewy and moisturizing and really does a good job of stripping the pores of impurities. So customers like to use it on their face and then others like to use it as a body mask for their legs, arms, neck area. I love it. Obsessed with it. Miracle Serum is great for acne scars, hyperpigmentation. It is an oil-based vitamin C serum instead of water-based. Green Tea Cleanser is a non-foaming cleanser. So amazing for acne-prone skin, redness. A lot of our customers with active acne or rosacea really gravitate towards that cleanser. So the product line itself is great for gentle skin, but uses the power of really some powerful natural ingredients to give the appearance of glowing, smooth complexion. I wish I could use that in my 20s. Now I'm regretful in my 40s for not (laughs) focusing on skincare. One thing I had a question related to that is in my 20s, I was wearing makeup and I didn't think about skincare. And now in my 40s, I'm like, oh gosh, I really wish I would have focused on skincare. How did you start thinking about that in your 20s? Because I feel like most 20-year-olds don't think about skincare. They don't think about wearing SPF versus, you know, SPF 2 versus the 50 that I wear. And so how did you think about the skincare component first? Social media has had a huge impact about educating my generation about skincare. It's so easy to just go on Instagram and there's lists and instructions on what products to use and what order to use them and how many of them you should use at a time. So I think social media has definitely played a part as to how I've looked at skincare for myself and for my brand. It definitely has inspired me to position the brand more as a clinique. I feel like a lot of skincare brands that cater to Gen Z demographic can be more novelty, fun, appealing, but aren't yielding serious results. So I think that Mary Louise is that skincare company that is a serious skincare brand for Gen Zers. And for example, what's the skincare brand that when you have a 13-year-old or 14-year-old daughter, you want to go and say, okay, it's time to get you started on Mary Louise, something that they can grow into. And I think with the new packaging and relaunch that we're doing, it caters and it transcends across different age groups where you're not going to look crazy if you have this in your makeup bag, no matter what age you are. That was super important too. Do you have the demographic data roughly of who your audience is, whether it's Gen Z or millennial or above? Our demographic is Gen Z women ages 18 to 26. 95% of that demographic are women and then the other 5% are men. But we noticed that through being published in different publications over the last year that we're able to tap in to millennial women as well, which has opened up a completely new door for us. So that's exciting. And was that a proactive marketing and sales strategy to expand that demographic, Tam, or did it just happen organically? It happened organically. So for example, we were on the Tamron Hall show virtually in February. So the demographic of that is mostly Gen X women and millennial women. So we got a great response from them and a different customer base. So it was exciting to see how they perceive the products, use the products in certain ways. And it was super fun. 
That's fantastic. You had mentioned at one point in social media, it had created a lot of sales, but then one day you woke up and there was literally no sales. Can you mention some of the other challenges that you encountered when you were building up the business? Yes. So we partnered with a subscription box company early on, which turned out to be the most amazing thing now. But back then, they needed maybe 5,000 units of Miracle Serum, which is like still a lot of product right now. So I was thinking, oh yeah, it's just like 5,000 like we can do. And I was just so excited to be in a major subscription box. I just did it. Completely mismanaged my money, was not giving time and attention to existing online orders that were coming in because I was so obsessed with this project. Looking back, I laugh about it now, but it was scary at the time. I thought that I was going to close my business down because I was like working on this one project. It's just like one of those founder stories that you tell today, but definitely I could talk about challenges and rejections all day long. Oh, we'll get there. Don't worry. (laughs) And so going with that, so talking about the business side of it, how did you learn? Did you hire more people to help you and keep time managed better or the production and the pipeline to be a little bit more streamlined? How did you look at the business operation side of it? Right. So about 18 months in, once I figured out that I was spending the majority of my time manufacturing and shipping, I knew that it was time to outsource. Just because orders were coming in at a consistent rate, I knew that I could afford it. And then I could focus on growing the brand another way. So we partnered with a 3PL fulfillment center and then a manufacturer. And so now I really had a chance to create content and come back to the roots of the brand because the brand was born from me creating content online. So at this point, we had maybe nine to 10,000 email subscribers. I took time to learn email funnels, social media strategies, and kind of put that together. I could not afford a PR agency at the time. So I wondered, how can I get my brand in online magazines? Like this has to happen. So I would go internet stock, different journalists and writers. I would go on, let's say, glamour.com, go to their beauty section, find the writers, and then go to Instagram, Twitter, to find an email address. And so I would have the spreadsheet and I still use the spreadsheet and I would pitch maybe 50 writers a week and then just take the ones that got back to me. So maybe three to four write-ups, which is still a lot on the brand. So that is how we were able to get our organic press and word of mouth referrals and basically spend zero dollars on marketing. That's fantastic. And how many people are at the business today? So now that we're fundraising, we're bringing on four new people, which is exciting. In the meantime, I've been using contractors and outsourcing things with customer service, fulfillment, web development, but it feels good to be able to bring on a team. So these are people that I connected with over the last year who know the brand. So as funding close and I'm able to really build out the team I want, it'll be exciting. So within the next 18 months, it'll be me and four other people. Exciting. You mentioned fundraising. I know there's a lot of rejection and failure in that. (laughs) So let's talk about that. What are the goals for Mary Lou's Cosmetics and what are you trying to do with the fundraise? So with the fundraising, we're really trying to position ourselves into retail. We will be launching with Macy's in August, which is so exciting. Our first retail partner ever. So the goal is to leave our footprint in retail while 
keeping our D2C arm strong. So through influencer programs, affiliate marketing, and not losing ourselves in the world of retail, just because it can be a super expensive venture, depending on what you're trying to do and how many doors you want to be in. So leveraging social media, press, organic word of mouth referrals, and then having that same level of impact through retail is the goal for the next 18 months. Congrats on the Macy's victory. That's amazing. I think that Macy's is an amazing, amazing place to start so we can give all of our attention to them and then expand for next year. Exciting. Well, congrats on the deal also. That is fantastic. I know a lot of people will strive just to get an interview with those brands and your Sephora and others. And so you've been able to successfully partner with them. That's fantastic. For the listeners who are interested in hearing about that pipeline or that business, how do you go about thinking about all the vendors and who to partner with? And what is that pitch like to the brands like Macy's? Rewinding back to summer of 2020, the height of the social justice movement, I think a lot of brands or big box retailers were looking at diversifying their brand offering, which is amazing and and targeting a lot of talented founders and Black-owned companies. That's how the conversation started. So It's been a year-long process of redoing packaging and brand aesthetic and focusing on sales and getting more press. And so I think a lot of people think that, oh, so-and-so likes your brand and then you're in the door the next day when it can take years to really perfect what you're offering. But it was such a learning process for me. I found out things about my business and looked at my business in ways that I'd never looked at before. I feel like when you're a solo founder, you're in so many places, but you're not able to dive in deep into one specific area. So I did that in all areas of my business. And I know the company like the back of my hand now. So it was a great experience. And I would say to people listening who want to be in retail, who have a consumer brand is patience and persistent, be persistent be patient and then be persistent again uh, would be the key. There's a woman I interviewed and she was young and also just very energetic. And I was thinking about her because she's similar to you and she dropped out of college junior year out of Harvard. And we talked about what that felt like to not only drop out of college, but also tell her immigrant parents, hey, I'm going to leave college, which is something you don't tell parents. They're like, no, I, I don't want that. And she said her parents thought Harvard was the lifelong destination. Once you get there, It didn't matter if you didn't do anything else in your life. You just went to Harvard. And so that's the golden trophy. And she said, no, college is not the the destination. It's the tunnel. And it's the idea that once you're there, then you have a lot of different paths you can choose from. So she was arguing now she started this software business that is fantastic. And she's managing $250 million in an asset management firm that she started. Most people would love that profile. And she leapfrogged over college to create that. And her parents are still like, so when are you going to finish college? (laughs) And she's like, no, that's not the point. And so I'm curious for you, is there a desire to finish when you've already created this amazing company that is a multimillion dollar business? How do you think about that destination versus tunnel framework? I think that earlier on, it was more important to me to finish just because it took me a while to be comfortable saying that I was an entrepreneur or a founder. Like it just didn't feel right to me. So when people would get mixers ask, oh, what do you do? Or what I would be like, I'm in skincare. Like that's what I was, I'm in skincare. So now I feel like within the last year, my confidence in my decision-making has really increased. 
I don't have any regrets. I mean, when things got really hard with Mary Louise or when sales weren't coming in or I felt like just things weren't working, then I would have those thoughts of I should have stayed, I should have finished. But I'm looking at life in a way where I don't feel regretful of the decision and just taking pride in the path that I chose. And what do you think it is in the past year that you gained more confidence? You'd think that in the first year, the second year, as you faced probably a lot more struggle and adversity, but towards year three, a lot of the business had already been set and the foundation had been placed. What was it in the past year you think that gave you additional confidence? Probably seeing the things I want to come into fruition. Sometimes when you plant those seeds early on, it's hard to stay confident and faithful without seeing results. But I think that's one thing of entrepreneurship. You have to be in a good mood and you have to be positive even when you can't see in front of your eyes that things are happening. But sometimes things are happening behind the scenes that you don't know about. So I definitely feel like knowing that I made the right decision by planting those seeds, leaving school, and now I'm able to see things coming to fruition has definitely built up my confidence knowing that patience is key. It will all work out. It'll all work out. Love that. I have one last question about the business before we move on to the questions I ask everyone. But I have a girlfriend who she used to be a chemist in the business and now she's on the business and operations side of skincare. But I remember just in our 20s and our 30s, I would ask her, okay, what about this product? And what about that product? And what about this ingredient? That because she actually would formulate it. And so much of what she said was in the product was actually just marketing because she said at the end of the day, all the big R&D houses use kind of the same thing, whether it's organic or not. And so you could choose the natural products route. But if you do that, again, it's very similar and it's a lot about marketing and the PR behind it. I'd love to get your thoughts there in terms of why your products by itself are also very good, but what you think about the sales component of it. And is it great strategy? Is it influencer driven? Like how does that work for you in terms of, is it product first or is it PR first? Having a skincare brand or any cosmetic brand in 2021, having a natural product line is the bare minimum. Why are you even doing skincare makeup if it's not clean beauty at this point? But I also think that leveraging the founder story, the brand story is now more important than ever. And I feel like customers are really eager to support brands that go beyond the product line. It almost feels like you are almost supporting the founder, their story, their journey, and then here are the products that like complement their story. So I think it goes beyond for sure the product line itself. So storytelling I've learned over the years is a big important component, genuine storytelling, being transparent, not fabricating, but just being authentic to who you are is going to win over any customer base, no matter what industry you're in. So that falls into PR, influencers, and making your brand look how you want it to look. I remember I would daydream about how I wanted the packaging to look, how I wanted the aesthetic to look and to have that now. And just the feedback I've been getting from close friends, family members, buyers. It's like I'm relaunching a completely new company just because the products look different. So I think that aesthetic is also super important too. Just visually, even if you have the same product in two different packages, which one are customers going to gravitate to the most is important too. I love that. And so speaking of the brand, I love the packaging. The font is very whimsical. Can you describe for our listeners, and this is obviously an audio podcast, but what the brand means to you, what you want the customers to feel when they pick up a Mary Louise brand. And so if you could talk more about the brand and your goals there. 
when customers use a Mary Louise product, they should feel carefree. They should feel like they're experiencing skincare and beauty on their own terms and using skincare in their own special way. So whether it's using Miracle Serum to fade acne scars on your underarms, which is a pretty common use, or if you want to use it as a primer under your foundation for an even glow, it should make you feel free and powerful and empowered. And me being a Californian, adding that carefree, whatever type of vibe is definitely in the DNA of the brand. So it should just feel easy. It's serious skincare without being stuffy. So I think that's important to have as well. And how do you think about the price point? I think that the price point is very appealing just because we use the same level of high quality ingredients as prestige skincare brands, but are appealing to a Gen Z audience. So it gives them the feel of using luxe, high quality products that are affordable and just make sense to them. When you formulate new products or even for the existing popular products, do you think about product first and experience first, or do you think about economics and margins? Just because I'm more of the creative person, I think about experience and product formulation first. And then I get I'm like, oh, okay, now we got to do cogs. And now we're going to do margins now, like the fun stuff, being inspired by different ingredients. I love to go to farmer's markets, be inspired by different raw ingredients there, whether it be turmeric, honey, or whatever fresh ingredients they have, and then add that into the product formulation philosophy. So I'm definitely looking at experience first. You had mentioned in college, you had Mississippi mud and your roommates and your floor mates would show you or share with you how they would use it for different things. So not just on their face, but in other parts of their body. And that quick feedback helped you realize, oh, there's different markets for this. I have a question about more of the demographic feedback where in my 20s, I don't remember any skincare making an impact for me because at the time, my 20s, my skin was a lot more just kinder to me (laughs) versus in my 40s. But how do you do testing for that band of 18 to 25 that your skin is still so elastic and has a lot more collagen? And now I'm trying to find all those products that can infuse it (laughs) in me immediately. But how do you test for that in a market for the late teens, early 20s? I was always testing products on myself. I got a good idea of what girls my age, whether it be on online or on campus, and then not too far, which Georgetown. So a few girls from Georgetown would try the products as well. So I think just because I was experimenting with ingredients that worked for my skin and my age range, they resonated with others as well. Obviously, everyone's skin is different, but I think that certain ingredients, whatever age range, work best. So it was like I had a almost focus group of what ingredients were resonating with my age range the most. And then whoever bought products outside of that age range would give me their feedback. And then I would kind of collect that data and see if I could create products that catered to them too. Well, I cannot wait to try Miracle Serum and I will buy that immediately after this interview. If it's okay with you, I'm going to pivot to some of the questions I ask everyone on the show, starting with who or what inspires you? So many people. Well, today, what has been inspiring me is food. And when I say food, 
I am in product development mode. So the first thing I do is turn to what foods can I incorporate superfoods into new products. So going to, again, like farmers markets, different places to see where ingredients are trending. So today food is inspiring me. Someone who inspires me is my mom. I always grew up watching her do her skincare routine and her mask growing up. So she definitely gave me the bug about beauty and skincare. One question that I have added in the past year or so, just because a listener had mentioned superpowers and one guest in particular, they're like, gosh, their superpower is this. And I just love that so much. And so I thought I'd ask directly, what do you think your superpower is? I think my superpower is probably making friends. Networking, making friends has really made a huge impact on me and Mary Louise and has opened so many doors that I don't think would have opened if I just didn't just saying hello and smiling and being nice. So I think that would be my superpower. What are you most proud of? I am most proud of my resilience. There are always going to be times when you just have to pat yourself on the back or things happen and you have to just congratulate yourself. Sometimes that's not enough for people to keep going. So I'm really proud that I did not give up. Let's talk about luck. Good luck, bad luck. I interviewed this one woman, May Shi, who talked about how good luck really impacted her. It was one of those that she started a candle business in a field that there's a lot of candles. And it's the idea of like, how do you break through? I'd love to hear your perspective of luck. So I grew up in a household where affirmations, manifesting was a huge thing. It still is a huge thing. So so many books my parents have and audio tapes my parents just sit me on how to manifest, how to create your own luck. So I definitely think you create your own luck. And I think that being prepared and the right opportunity equals luck. So I think that anyone can be lucky if they are super positive about what they want. Don't let negative thoughts infiltrate and stay persistent. Tell me more about this manifestation. And this is more, I'm just curious, how does it work? Do you do it in a certain frequency? Do you say, okay, I'm going to manifest goals for one year, two years, or is it goal-oriented? So when I manifest for my business, I script them. So I write them down. Sometimes it's just free-flowing writing in the morning or at night or when I'm inspired. But the writing is always in the past tense as if it's already happened. So that's why affirmations are I am instead of I will. So you have to become present. So if you say I will have a multi-million dollar business, you'll always be in the state of I will. It'll always seem like it's coming. So saying I am, you immediately shift to already being there. So meditating has really helped me with that. And so that is what's helped me manifest through my affirmations, scripting, Astrology, honestly, I just add a little sprinkle of astrology in there um, (laughs) with my horoscope. But anyone can manifest. Anyone can manifest and just act as if, act as if already you have what you want and then it'll be on the way. What's the difference between manifesting and creating goals? But looking at goals in hindsight in the same way of saying, okay, I run a multi million dollar business. What's the language difference for you in terms of goal setting versus manifestation? There's a lot that goes 
hand in hand. So for example, on New Year's Eve or New Year's, I'll make a list of all the things that I want to happen in the following year. But the title will be things that happened to me in 2021. So I write them from a past tense. And so it just puts me in the mood of, I guess, working backwards. So if I've accomplished this goal, then what must have happened for me to do it. So I feel like working backwards a lot of times really helps me to get to the goal. I know that sounds a little weird. I mean, also just like forgetting about the goal too is important to manifesting when you hang on to things too long, you don't get them. I like to make the comparison of like the cool kid in school who like really doesn't care about anything, but always like gets what they want. It's like that same attitude where don't obsess over it or it won't come. Just be excited that it's on the way and leave it alone. For example, if you order a dish at a restaurant, you're not checking in the kitchen to see if it's being made or you're not asking where it is. You know that it's coming. You're so excited to eat it. And you don't even think you order it. Oh, it's already here. That's the same energy that has to go into manifesting. I love that analogy. Thank you. Certainly the name of the show, I ask people about failures and struggles, and you'd mentioned a few challenges, but if you can share the most impactful failure that you've had, and from that, I'm sure there's a big growth moment. So if you can share that, that'd be great. One of the bigger ones would be, I guess, the impact that happened after the subscription box fiasco is when I had to learn to regain the trust of my customer base. I had delayed orders some lost orders, raw materials weren't coming in on time. So the whole system that I had in place was I had to start from scratch and really gain the trust of hundreds of customers who had placed orders who weren't satisfied. Especially when you're a founder, everything is personal. Everything is emotional. You're not just looking at like customer service tickets and solving. These are your friends, your best friends purchasing from you. So it really affected me emotionally. I know some people are like, oh, they're just fixed, but it's like a thing. So earning the trust of my customer base by experimenting with different marketing plans and ways to be transparent that I wasn't before really in the long run made a great impact on me and the company. So now if anything happens or if anything I know is not going as planned, being transparent, being authentic is always the way to go. So I think that was a lesson that I had learned early on to perfect that. What is next for Akila Rilleford? Closing fundraising, launching into retail and making and leaving our mark in the beauty industry as a serious but fun skincare company for Gen Z women and kind of rediscovering the brand itself. I'm super excited for the launch, super excited to relaunch on socials with influencers and retail online when giving the brand a facelift, no pun intended. And that's what's next. I feel like I'm launching a completely new company and I'm excited to take the beauty world by storm. So fun. Love it. Love it. What is the difference between Mary Louise 1.0 versus 2.0? You mentioned the relaunch, but what's the difference? The entire packaging is different. It looks like two completely different brands and the product offering is different. So at one point we had like 15 SKUs on the site, which is a lot for a small company. So now we've narrowed it down to 
what is the DNA of the brand going to be, what products are selling the most, and what products build the best skincare regimen and just make sense for the user. So it's five products. We're going in with Miracle Serum, Mississippi Mud Green Tea Cleanser, the originals, and then Turmeric Serum and Turmeric Face Mask. So I think that is a great way to relaunch the brand and then introduce new products in Q1 of next year. And kind of just being a minimalist, minimalist vibes. We just did our first photo shoot, video shoot last week. So that was so fun to be on set. And uh, I feel like a mom. I feel like a, I guess like a teen mom. A teen mom with five fabulous babies. So I, I saw the photo shoot last week on social media. I thought it looked fabulous. And so I'm looking forward to trying all five. Akila, I had such a blast talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. It was so fun. I really appreciate it.